Episode 47 of the Ski Slope, bringing back Dr. Ricky Friedman. Welcome back, Ricky. Thank you, Howie. Carl, nice to see you guys. You too. I'll say, Alan, your background is a lot more interesting than mine. <laughs> and, and that's no green screen. That's no green screen. That's, uh, I live on the water here overlooking Miami. It's a nice setting. Is that Eddie? Eddie, hey. We'll just unmuted him. Yeah. What's up, Eddie? Bring it in. So how does this work, How You're controlling all the muting and unmuting of people as the leader? Is that how it works? I am. It's, it's, right. it's far beyond color world leader at this point. This is, this is Zoom leader. This nice. is a, a whole nother sweater. But I'll, I'll manage. I've only done these things like a one-on-one, -on -one, and if it's been multiple people, I've never been the leader. So, but we'll, we'll get by. So if I want to speak, do I have to like raise my hand or something, or how does it work? Um, no, I think it's just general protocol, like, like, like go for it. Like try to be mindful of other people speaking, but it's amazing that the zoom, like uh, video thing sort of captures the person that's speaking and highlights their box. You know? right. Hey Ricky, oh, Ed's leaving. He's had it. How are you doing? What's that? Are you exhausted? How are you doing? I'm pretty tired. It's uh, physically draining, emotionally exhausting, but we're used, we're kind of used to that. So just keep working. You don't really have a choice. So what exactly, so you're in um, uh, uh, the maternity department, right? Or, or what's yeah. the, well, what department are you in? Obstetrics and gynecology. So I split my time from a patient standpoint because I have administrative and academic responsibilities. I switch, I split my time between the office, outpatient and the labor floor. So how much of like of this the virus like hits you like in your everyday activities? Well, you guys touched on this uh, the other night when you were speaking. I guess it was episode forty-six. It's a little bit scary because there are at least three, maybe as many as eight times as many people who have the virus and are potentially contagious, yet are completely asymptomatic or have minimally uh, have minimal symptoms. On our labor floor, we just started testing all admissions. So anyone who comes in in labor or with any obstetric complication, everyone gets tested. And then uh, just this past weekend, we started testing the partners thereof. Uh, I'm sure you may have read Governor Cuomo issued an executive order that a patient has to be allowed to have a partner there as long as that partner is asymptomatic. So since roughly nine days that we've been testing every patient, we've found between 25 and 33% are positive. Wow. And that's the same number as uh, Columbia and New York Presbyterian. So it's, it's a high number are actually positive. Which is odd because they must have caught the virus or not necessarily, but likely caught it prior to the social distancing and the efforts that have been put into place. Presumably, but if the social distancing has been two weeks, and that means these patients 
would have been positive virus for two weeks. And the big question related to that is, are they still contagious if they have the virus? Widespread antibody testing, which would be, which would indicate immunity to the virus has not been rolled out yet. So technically we are taking care of patients, not knowing our own immune status. And since the test that's generally available in most hospitals is taking between four and 14 hours to run, we're taking care of patients who are potentially contagious without ourselves not, any knowledge that we're immune or not. Have you been tested for the virus at all? No, we can't get tested because the, we, supposedly we're going to be tested for antibodies on a rollout process starting next week. But presently, they're not testing asymptomatic individuals or minimally symptomatic individuals, whether you're a patient or a healthcare provider. So I am quite certain that a lot of us actually have been exposed to the virus. Several docs and nurses have been on quarantine and gradually been rolling back into the workforce. And obviously, although we're lucky in our department, no one's been critically ill. There have been several docs who have been critically ill, several nurses who have been critically ill. I don't, I don't understand the logic of that, why you wouldn't be, the medical workers wouldn't be the first priority. That makes, that doesn't really make much sense. Well, as a caregiver, I agree with you. I mean, the, initially, there weren't, an, there weren't antibody tests. Yeah. But yeah. now that they're available, they're not widespread enough to be able to treat everybody. In addition, I think they're afraid if they find that 25% of the workforce is antibody positive, though that 25% may be pressed into even more interaction than they already have been because the 75% are going to say, hey, I haven't had this yet. I don't want to get exposed. Now, obviously, it's not, that's not the mentality we have taking care of patients. Right. We have a small group of individuals with that mentality, though. Crazy. Really is. And what 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 about the the protective gear? Are you finding like your particular hospital has a shortage of it, or overall we have been initially yes, there was clearly a shortage, and we're still reusing the N95 masks that have become so commonly referred to at this point. We are reusing our N95s if they get soiled or are no longer functional. We do exchange them and we get a new one to use until such time as that becomes similarly unusable. We have uh, presently enough gowns, uh, certainly enough gloves. Question how long that lasts based on the number that we're seeing. But every time we go in and out of a room, it's a whole process. I did a delivery late last night and uh, to walk in and out of the room is a five minute ordeal. It's a whole process one has to do to limit risk to the patient of us, limit risk to us of the patient. And of course the nurse coming in with us and afterwards you have the support associates who are cleaning the room and depending on whether or not the patient was positive or negative depends on how vigorously the rooms have to be cleaned. So we use an awful lot of uh, personal protective equipment on a regular basis. And for a delivery, if the patient is positive, we have the protective gown underneath our standard gown to limit exposure because the standard gowns we use are generally water resistant, but they're certainly not virally protectant. And as a result, it gets hot. I walked out of the room uh, this morning or late last night, having done the delivery, and I had more sweat on my scrubs than I have on my workout gear when I finish a typical workout. It's like working with, radi with radiation. Yeah, it's the unseen enemy and uh, all over the place. You know, the concerning thing also is, as we're finding out that so many patients have the virus itself but are asymptomatic, we don't know for how long they're contagious. And if we get it, we don't really know for how long we're contagious. Are you surprised at, at how little we, I feel like what we were told in the beginning, and I'm not saying in bad faith necessarily, but what we were told is really bearing out, very little of it's bearing out to be true. Yeah, I think Airborne, there's- it's not, you know, all those things. I think there's a great difference in the way our media in the United States circulates and what comes out versus what we obtain from countries that are much more totalitarian. I mean, it's very odd and I don't want to get political. That's not the purpose of this exchange. And seeing my buddies over here, I definitely don't want to get political, but it's very interesting that China reported no new endemic cases the day after all the foreign journalists were kicked out of the country. I mean, from an epidemiologic standpoint, that's absurd. They I don't think that's that the only cases one. were those who were coming in. 
I think the left and the right would all agree on that one. Yeah. I w- and it's so absurd. Like, why wouldn't they say, okay, we had 210 cases? Like, like we had zero. They went to zero. They right. went right down to zero. <laughs> you know, it's Very like when Putin runs and he gets 99% of the vote or something like right. that. Like, at least, at least make it, like, believable to some extent. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an informational paradox. What, what about this, like, hydroxychloroquine? Chloroquine. how to pronounce it. Like, what are you, what are you hearing about that? Because, I mean, Alan and I touched on this last time, and it seems like here's a possible treatment that in and of itself has become politicized and which is shocking yeah one never wants to let politics get in the way of health care and treatment but obviously as we've seen over the last however many years it clearly has the preliminary data which is anecdotal was very favorable however what one has to realize is a bunch of anecdotes does not add up to a quality study in order to assess the value of a treatment one has to really look at the cost of the treatment in terms of lives and in addition, is it working? Is it financially cost-effective as well? And you hate to put a price on human life, but obviously people do that every day. The anecdotes are problematic because we don't know what type of patients were receiving the medication. How far along in their course were they? Would they have gotten better on their own without the medication? Mm-hmm. Did the medication shorten their degree of uh, illness? So mm-hmm. what's going on now at many sites throughout the country is that they're randomizing patients who are admitted. And again, that's not the perfect randomization, but it's about as, as good a randomization as we can get. So they're randomizing them, and from there, they're giving them the medication. I don't think they're giving, giving them placebo, right. which makes it problematic because it's not uh, blinded and it's not uh, a, con- a, a controlled study. You don't have your cohort of not getting it and, or your controls not getting it in your so do you feel like in whatever well how long will that take before there's enough data to to make any sense of it um i'm not a statistician so i can't give you the exact answer all these studies depend on whether you want a 30 percent reduction in severity and what is severity is severity death is severity intubation is severity prolonged hospital stay it depends how one defines the endpoints so it's not going to cure everybody and along the way it's going to kill some people there i don't know if you've seen an EKG, uh, electrocardiogram, uh, measuring the electrical activity of the heart, but it has a little P wave, which is a symbol of the electric stimulus from the atrium, and then it goes through the whole conduction pathway through the ventricle to get the electric si- uh, signal to stimulate the muscle to contract. So one of the side effects of hydroxychloroquine, especially when used with azithromycin, which we've all taken as a Z-pack, it can prolong what's called the, the QT interval, which is sort of the electrical activity followed by the repolarization of the heart. And if you prolong that, the heart may not get back to its resting electrical state, which could lead to a fatal arrhythmia. So you wanna, we want to make sure that we're not killing more people than we're treating, obviously. Right, but even, even if that didn't occur, even if the harshest things didn't happen to, uh, you know, uh, to certain people, just discovering something that... Um, might improve things 20%, 30%. But that's not actually going to cure people. Right. That's good. I'm not negating that. But that doesn't get us to some kind of an end point. I'm, I'm starting to think, how the hell do we get out of this thing? And if right. that's, not the, that's not enough for us to get out of this thing. It doesn't right. sound like me. Right. It's not a panacea. It will work right. for some patients. It won't work for others. And it will cause more harm in some patients probably cause harm in fewer patients than it helps. I think that's right. pretty obvious from the early data. The, the best thing obviously would be a vaccine. I mean, when was the last time you heard anybody getting polio? You know, there are smatterings of outbreaks over the last 30, 40 years, and that's it. And if you look at your own arm, I don't know how old you are, but if you look at your and own have left arm, you might see a little smallpox vaccine injection, the scar from the smallpox vaccine. That hasn't been given out in America for at least 40 years. It's a virus that's considered dead by the WHO because there have not been any outbreaks of smallpox ever since the vaccine really was widespread. And that goes back, I don't even know how many years. Uh, I should have looked that up ahead of time, but certainly outbreaks of smallpox, except in remote tribes perhaps, have have not been seen in over 40, 50 years, probably longer than that. 
Uh, obviously, a vaccine would be the best. But, it, right. you know, even when you listen to the medical experts and they say, we're really working on this, we're going as fast as possible, unlike anything we've ever done before. But still 12 months, 18 months away. Sure, so because if, we have to fir- they have to first identify the virus, identify which parts of the virus can be attacked. How do you get your own cells to recognize the virus and make an antibody to it? Then once you find that, that may even be the easiest part of this. You have to test it out in animals to make sure, one, it works, two, it doesn't kill the animals. And then three, you then have to test it out in volunteers. And the volunteers have to be willing to be exposed or are likely to get exposed. They're not going to expose the volunteers intentionally to the virus the way they can do with uh, small laboratory animals. But it takes a while. And that's my point is that it just... It, how relevant is a vaccine right now? In, right in now, terms it's of like it's, us getting back right. to normal and in, in, in society coming back to where it was. Right now, the vaccine is more how do we prevent this in the future? But right mm-hmm. now, you need treatment. So, the way how do we treat this? We have to find something that works safely. Then we have to ice, or at this concurrent with that is isolating populations so it doesn't spread. And that's the only way to beat it. If, if enough individuals in a population, have the virus and have immunity to, or had the virus and have immunity to it, you get what's called herd immunity and it protects the other people who haven't yet gotten it. And most of how the does studies- that, How does herd immunity, yeah, I, 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 how does that work? Because it seems to me like you're still this individual biological creature. So right. if you're not immune to it, why would this herd immunity work for you? Because it's sort of, a, it's sort of like looking at a, brownie in motion random motion in a in a collection if you have the virus circulating and it keeps bumping into people who are already immune there's no propagation of that virus a virus is really just a bag of in this case rna or a bag of dna unlike bacteria it can't replicate on its own it has mm-hmm. to get into a cell and then use the cell's own energy and the cell's own raw materials to rep to divide a virus by itself can't divide it's just sitting there Okay. It has no okay, so internal energy source. So it, it just reduces the, the spreadability of the virus in, in, exactly. in, in the population itself. It's not right. that uh, a particular individual now is not susceptible to getting it. It's just the no, chances are, are of them getting it are very low. Yeah. To go off on a tangent, that's the problem with Zika. You know, before the uh, 2016 Olympics, Zika was, was all everybody talked about. And as a result, Uh, people think now Zika is gone. Zika is not gone, but enough individuals in the countries where it was most common are immune right now that the general populace is not getting infected. But if if I, as an outsider, go there, I could easily pick up Zika. Now, if I'm not pregnant, chances are I'm reasonably healthy. Nothing much will happen. Maybe I'll get a rash, a fever, whatever. But if a pregnant woman who's naive to to Zika goes down to Brazil gets bitten by enough mosquitoes, she could easily come down with Zika. See, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, why would you be susceptible to it, but the person that hasn't gotten the individual immunity to it in Brazil isn't? No, that person is susceptible to it, but it's, it's just, again, does the, does the number of mosquitoes that are still carrying it end up being able to transmit it to that individual person? It's just a population entity that enough people in the area are, have been immunized to it so that you don't hear it. In fact, I have no idea what the percentage of, uh, with, of uh, individuals in Brazil who are immune to it, but it's a pretty high percentage, I'm willing to bet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me ask you, Ben, uh, the medicine, the hydroxychloroquine, if that's the name? Yes. Is malaria in any way similar to coronavirus? Is that why they think it might work? No, malaria is caused by a parasite gets, that gets into the red blood cells and destroys the red blood cells. Why does uh, the same medication work? Well, this, it has to do with sort of side effects of what the medication can do. And as a result, you know, the virus has to attach to a cell that is the right type of cell. So if you put the malaria parasite, the plasmodium, into a different type of cell, it might not have any effect whatsoever. So the cell has to have the receptors for this virus. You could ask why do some of our cells have receptors for a parasite or receptors for a virus? I could ask, but I wouldn't understand, I'm sure. (laughs) No idea why, no idea, but it does. So it attaches to cells. And in this case, the coronavirus is uh, 
able to attach to the cells that uh, it's called angiotensin II. It's a medication that's involved in blood pressure regulation that uh, happens to these cells happen to live in the lung. So it uh, attacks these cells. And, Is that the Doobie uh, Brothers, by the way? I'm just curious. What's, what's that? Is that a Doobie Brothers ringtone I'm uh, hearing? I think it's the native strum. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, black, oh, hold, I thought it was uh, long train water. running. Yeah, it could certainly be. The beginning of it might be the same. You're more musically inclined than I am, so you would know Well, better. very, very big. That was, I, I always say that the first two songs on Doobie Brothers' Greatest Hits were the like official van ride songs. Where I would agree to that. Thank you, Alan. All right now, sorry, sorry <laughs> for that it, tangent. It, it, attaches, it attaches to the lung cells, and that's where the problem starts. The problem, people keep talking about a pneumonia, and it's not really a pneumonia. It's this process called the respiratory distress syndrome. The lungs fill with, fill with fluid, and as a result of fluid, the, and then subsequent to that, there's this uh, healing process, which the, is a fibrotic, a scarring process. So it's not just that the acute nature is difficult because if you have fluid in your lungs, you can't exchange oxygen across that fluid. And then as part of the healing process, the recovery, the lungs become scarred and that's permanently. I have a question. What percentage of people who are, is it intubated and put on a respirator end up getting through it? Is it? Look, uh -huh. That's a roughly, great question. Roughly. That's a great question, and we're learning that because you see the if you watch the news at all, you see the numbers uh, and uh, from uh, Governor Cuomo's uh, presentation, da almost daily presentations. You see the numbers. This number, we're diagnosed with the virus. This number, we're hospitalized. This number, died. This number, we're cured. So first of all, if we take only the population that's positive, about eighty-five percent we think are completely asymptomatic. And quite honestly, as we test more and more patients that percentage is going to grow. So it may be 90% of people don't even get sick or have a runny nose or a sore throat or fever for a day. So that, that part is reassuring. Of the people who are hospitalized, I would say, I can give you the statistics roughly for Sinai system. Sinai's health system presently has um, over 2,000 patients who are hospitalized with side effects. So they have COVID-19. They have the SARS COVID-2 virus and it's caused a disease to them. That disease is called COVID-19. Of the over 2,000, roughly 400 are in ICUs. So about a fifth of them. Of that roughly 400, my guess is about 300 of them at least will walk out and have maybe some residual sequelae, but um, will walk out of the ICU and lead a reasonably normal life after. So Those are the most objective numerical answers, right, but that I've, I've heard in, in regards to that. I think so those like are realistic based on the information we're getting. And that, that obviously can change. Maybe next week it won't be so reassuring. But if you get it, it can be very bad. But luckily, unless, you have, unless you're elderly or severe underlying ailments, it seems to be that the vast majority will be cured. Even if they get on a, on a ventilator? Even if they're on a ventilator. So you hear Boris Johnson's on a is in ICU. I assume that means he's on a ventilator. Yeah, pretty scary. Pretty scary. Yeah, yeah. one in four chance he may not make it. I mean, as yeah. positive as it is to say, I, I thought I thought it was actually a greater chance that he would not make I, I it. I did too, actually. I thought it was like three out of four. Yeah. So this yeah, is I think it's somewhat a good reassuring. Chance most people on the ventilator will make it. Oh, that's good to hear. Are there any other infectious diseases that that are this way that? you know, the, the large percentage of people that get it are, are basically asymptomatic, and then there's a, a very small percentage that have these severe consequences? I mean, it seems like if you get the flu, yeah, you get the flu, like you feel it, there's, you just don't walk around right. and not know that you have it. Um, yeah, the answer to that is uh, yes, there's a common cold, which are most, many of which, not all, many of which are coronaviruses, some are adenoviruses. Um, many viruses have minimal symptoms, the flu, many people, look, if we, 20,000 people in America, at least this season, died of the flu. Um, probably a hundred times that caught the flu, or at least were exposed to it. Now you could argue, well, look, we have a flu vaccine, so even if you get the flu, it's generally a more mild case. But your question is a good one, and I can't answer it because we still don't know how many people actually got exposed to the virus to say what percent they're asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. But it could very well be if we tested everybody for the flu, maybe uh, 
we would like find maybe out that's the case. Maybe you have the flu and you never knew that you had it. What's fortunate is this is not as virulent, although it's much more contagious by comparison, at least the numbers seem to support that, much more contagious than the original SARS virus, which uh, um, was uh, a few years ago, which had about a 30% mortality, but was much more confined, or MERS, which was another coronavirus that was from the Middle East, mostly Yemen and Saudi Arabia, had close to 70% mortality, but was highly confined. So this is uh, much better. I mean, even Ebola has a 70% mortality. So some people with Ebola end up surviving, but uh, luckily this does not have anywhere near that degree of mortality, but it seems to be very highly contagious, just as some of the others were. Within the medical community, like, have you like, been operating for years on the basis that this kind of thing's gonna happen at some point? Like, was that, was that top of mind for like a doctor? like always or did this does it really just come out of does it see did it surprise you as much as someone like myself you know i think we're all all anyone in the healthcare world is is cognizant of the fact that pandemics do occur at certain intervals it's the question of the response and how much information do we have how much mitigation are we able to achieve there are epidemiologists and virologists who sit there every day worrying about that Right. Um, I don't think most of us could function if we worried every day. It would sort of be like a police officer leaving the house thinking, oh, my God, I could get shot today. Right. So it, it, it's there. The worry is there. The concern is there. But uh, luckily, I don't, I don't walk out of the house thinking that. Even now, I'm aware of the fact that every single day, every single patient encounter, every time I go to the grocery store, I'm at risk to getting it. But... Yeah, we don't, I don't function like that. And luckily most people don't function. I guess like more, more what I was even asking is, is there someone at the hospital who's thinking, Hey, any day there could be a pandemic that comes and sweeps across. And why, did, why didn't you all have way more, uh, you know, uh, supplies stocked up? Right. Not just to everybody. I'm not, you know, why yeah. didn't everyone have more? That's a great question, Pearl. And I'll tell you, yes, there are people in the institution who are very worried about this. There's no question. We have some of the world experts in virology, epidemiology, et cetera. And they are definitely aware of that. And I'm sure they think about it every day. What's going to be the next one? What's going to be the next bioterrorism? Anything along those lines. However, quite honestly, even though I am, I, my colleagues who do the same thing I do, the ER workers in every aspect, whether it's the support associate greeting the patient to the chairman of the emergency department. While all of us are affected by the shortage of PPE, the reality is that if you look at the numbers, there's no way any of this could have been stored. So I don't fault the federal government. I don't fault the regional governments. I don't even fault our hospital administrators. And just by way of example, the president of New York Presbyterian Health System, okay, that's not my health system, but the president of that system was on the news about uh, two and a half, three weeks ago. And I listened to him, actually, I, it may have been a webcast actually, but he said in an average day, their health system, unrelated to coronavirus, their health system uses 4,500 pieces of personal protective equipment. Okay, 4,500 in a health system. Sounds like a lot. I mean, there's tuberculosis, all sorts of ailments that are out there, contagions that could spread. He said in the first few days of this outbreak, they were using 450,000 pieces of equipment. Wow. So you're talking from 4,500 to 450,000, a hundredfold increase. So there is no way, and that's in one day, there's no way anybody could have stockpiled paid right. for it to stockpile and wasted all of it when it has its expiration dates. So I, I can't fault anybody. This hit rapidly to an extent that I don't think anybody could have anticipated or have been prepared. Hey Moose, I see you joined us. Do you have a question? Yes. Yeah, you. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening, hey, Moose. Hey, Howie. I'm glad you didn't talk at the grocery. <laughs> no, I didn't. What? No, I went to the grocery store today and I, I wore my mask, but I'd forgotten to take my gum out before I put my mask on. So I was walking around the store, like basically <laughs> suffocating. <laughs> like, should I swallow my gum or I'm just create, creating like water that goes down my throat? It was, it was horrible. So I learned my lesson to always spit my gum out before I put my uh, protection. Why do you have a cigarette in your ear? No, this is, a, uh, this is my headphone. 
Oh, those are your buds. AirPods. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> hey, Ricky, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Surviving. You look a little tired. Yeah, I was up late last night and up early this morning. But, uh, you know, as I say, when we greet each other in the hospital, how are you doing? It's like, well, I'm afebrile, I'm in vertical. That's what counts. Okay. Can't ask you, you see, more than you, that. Do you see your business growing uh, day to day? Is it, is it like oh, significant? No, it's, it's, it's horrible. Um, from a financial standpoint, most doctors are taking a major hit. And the reason for that is just in our field alone, we uh, eliminate in order to help limit the spread. So we don't want people coming out of the house. We don't want patients to put uh, other patients at risk. We don't want them to put our, sta our staff at risk. So it, our hospital banned all routine checkups. So we have only been seeing emergencies and obstetrics patients. And even with the obstetrics patients, we've been working out ways to limit the number of times they have to leave the house. So it's, uh, you know, our revenue is quite down, but this right now is not about revenue. This is about getting everybody yeah. healthy and trying to, it's redundant, but limit the spread. Well, that's what I meant. I like when you go into the hospital, do, do you see like a, like a significant increase on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the busyness, in terms of the, pa the patients coming in? I mean, I know you're, you know, in the well, OBGYN area, but still. Yeah. In our, in our, our own little Idaho, so to speak, maybe that's a bad example to use these days, <laughs> but in, uh, on the labor and delivery, it's pretty steady just about every day. We do have some days that are more quiet and some, some days that are busier, but it's been, it's been pretty much what we see on a regular basis. Uh, they're definitely. Do you have pregnant days. women coming in who test positive? Sure, twenty-five to thirty-three. Tw depending, it's roughly twenty-five to thirty-three percent of our patients who have been coming to the labor floor have been uh, positive for the virus. Wow. Most of them, luckily, asymptomatic. Over ninety percent have been either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. And do, are, are the babies then at any risk if the mother has coronavirus? Eddie, that's an amazing question, and the answer is. Almost certainly it crosses the, the placenta, but luckily with not high affinity. There have been isolated cases where babies tested positive for the type of antibody that can't cross the placenta, so they must have made their own antibody, which means they must have been exposed. There have been several infants, neonates, so that means within the first 28 days who have come back positive, but initially it wasn't sure that they weren't exposed either in the birthing process or subsequent to that. The first study that came out of China, they were all delivered by cesarean section, so you wouldn't expect them to necessarily get exposed to uh, a large number of maternal uh, fluids. But uh, subsequent to that, as the numbers increasing, especially in America, we're seeing that occasional babies, luckily rare, but occasional babies have been positive. Maybe that vaccine's in the placenta. Well, in our institution, every placenta is being of a positive mom is being um, examined to check to see for viral particles. But remember, they could be Do you on the trust studies side. coming out of China? Sorry? Do you trust studies coming out of China? Uh, I don't trust the data coming out of China. Okay. Well, the, the one nice thing, I guess, about being in your private Idaho is it's one of the few positive things happening in hospitals now. You know, yeah. I do know, like, one of my colleagues had a child this past weekend, and that was wonderful to hear because I know... Now five people who have died from coronavirus. Yeah, it's it, it's and scary. It hits home. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know someone who's been pretty ill with coronavirus uh, in New York City. It's, yeah, unfortunately, uh, I know two doctors. Yeah. Well, one's on a uh, respirator. They're both in North Shore, but uh, he's like touch and go. Well, if you watched uh, any of Cuomo's speeches, and you could go on the New York State Department of Health, Nassau County has the third most cases in the state. Uh, New York City obviously won, but that's taking all five boroughs. Uh, Westchester, two, partly because of New Rochelle, and Nassau County, three. It's not something we can be proud of, but uh, that's reality. It's based so, on uh, density, though. You know, I yes. mean, like, Calicoon and Keshectin are not going to get the same <laughs> type of... Uh, Wayne County's uh, okay, huh? Yeah, but is it? If they get, if they Actually, get, Wayne County's been hit pretty hard. And it's really, ten or twenty people aren't they? <laughs> At least someone. So I read that somewhere. I don't know if it's true on, on Facebook. <laughs> I think that's Wayne County, Michigan, though. <laughs> Detroit is. 
<laughs> but seriously, that's possible. <laughs> yeah. I just think that's a. I don't know if the infirmary could handle in a small town where they can't handle it. They're screwed. You're right. right. Yeah, that's true. We thought about getting out of New York City, and we were talking about you know what would be the best thing, and you know like you go upstate or someplace. Do they have the resources up there? You know. And yeah, that's a great familiar. point, Eddie. Al, you guys make great points because. A lot of we've had a bunch of patients flee to the uh, suburbs or the not even suburbs or the rural areas trying to escape it. And exactly as you and Alan said, if you're out there and you get sick, you're really at the mercy. I mean, I would hate to think of what the Honesdale Hospital, how many patients they could handle at once that are really ill. They had a hard time with a broken thumb years yeah. back. <laughs> I mean, just imagine our infirmary there. Uh, so, and the other, the other problem with people fleeing New York City is you're taking a high density area and bringing it to low density, a high uh, percentage of, of infected individuals bring it to an area with low infection rate, which is a well, I, think, I think it's a good point that people make that. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Moose. Okay, that, that we have all these like restrictions about leaving our home yet, you know, somebody from New York can get on a plane and fly wherever they want. And um, I mean, granted, once you get there, there may be a quarantine order in place, but I'm surprised there's not more domestic travel restrictions. And I guess the, the actually, philosophy is, well, you can get in your car and drive, but still, yeah, I would, that I would was put as much friction. That was discussed in the news conference this evening. Why uh, have there not been bans with uh, intra-state ba or interstate bans as opposed to just intercontinental mm -hmm. or inter-country? Uh, um, and... There are states that are banning. There are roadblocks in Texas preventing people coming from Louisiana for that very reason. Um, you know, we're one country, but certainly the the concerns are that some of the larger cities are going to spread it to the less dense areas. Um, I don't know and which is in favor though. of martial law. It's a, it's a tough thing to impose, but it, it, you're right. In order to truly limit the spread, that's what needs to have happen. Right. Notice that yeah. even in that case uh, in Singapore, where they obviously have very good control over their their citizenry, um, they were on full lockdown. They went back, came off of it, and now they're back on full lockdown um, because they had another little spurt of cases. Yeah, and that's what happens when we ease our restrictions. It's sad, but they, that's firsthand evidence. They had really well contained it. But obviously, it was in the community, and as soon as they eased up the restrictions, it burst up again. And is it? It's warm in Singapore. I mean, you know, you you heard some people say that maybe during the warmer weather, the virus will lose strength and go away. But I don't get that. It's warm in Miami now. They're right. Getting and so it doesn't. I don't seem understand that theory great. that well. And and that's why Florida's maybe, been okay, right? No, Florida's no, starting Florida. to pick up. It's a problem. Oh, is Florida has pro had a problem for several reasons. They were very late in the banning. You had all the spring, not all, you had many spring breakers down there not practicing any type of social distancing. I mean, the, the news reports were so disappointing to see. There was that one guy who was sunburned saying uh, he's waited three months for this. If he gets coronavirus, he doesn't care. I mean, I think that was Johnny Eunice. <laughs> I, still, I still see groups <laughs> of younger people six, seven, eight, nine guys and girls on boats going past me with the music playing. And it's like, you know, for the most part, people have, you know, are staying at home. But there's a group that isn't down here. Yeah. And that's where yeah, the problems arise. Especially young people, you know, uh, I know that some of my students have been, you know, congregating stupidly, but it's a uh, you know part of the population teenage kids sometimes do really stupid things yeah so you know, kids... sorry michael somebody one could argue that the colleges did a real disservice by closing their doors because if you Get think that. about it they had a perfect chance to isolate little pockets all over the place and I recognize they didn't want to be burdened with the difficulty of taking care, should there be a local uh, spread or widespread within the campus. But by letting students spread all over, especially at the time of spring break, I'm not completely convinced that that wasn't contributing to some of the spread. I know there are philosophic reasons why they wouldn't want to do it. There are probably financial problems, 
as our economic concerns, but I'm not sure that it was a service to the general population by allowing the college students or banning the college students. They closed dorms, they closed the campuses. Forced them out to who knows where. Right. Mm -hmm. Just out into the community. And to, with who, who knows whom, you know, with grandparents perhaps and right. other. Exactly people. right. Exactly yeah, right. People are vulnerable. Uh, it's gonna be, it's gonna be uh, interesting, uh, I think. Uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Hey. No, 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 you go. No, you sound like you have a much more serious point than I was going to make. That's, that's, that's just my demeanor. No, <laughs> you go ahead. You know, I, uh, I called the person who owns the camp that I worked at uh, you know, over those couple of summers. Uh, and I said, are you guys planning on opening? He's like, oh, yes, we're, go we're planning on opening. I, I don't think that's possible. I don't think so. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think... Uh, Certainly a dangerous proposition unless things get better very quickly. But many camps have kids coming from all over the place now. Yes, I know that it's Sweden, you had the occasional person from Las Vegas, uh, Argentina, Argentina, briefly, Venezuela. But most people were in the tri-state area or quadra-state area. We had one kid from Virginia, I remember. <laughs> How soon, Ricky, do you think it's going to be before they'll have a test that can tell if you had it like in five minutes at huge scale because i believe there's no way we're going to get back to any sense of normal until you can sort of just tag the people who are done who had it they're out of it you you're immune i guess assuming you're immune i don't know if that's even understood at this point but if you are then those people get back into the world and it's going to take this slow roll until there's a vaccine i don't see any other way i don't do yeah, you have I, any I, idea how it could I, I agree with that. I think we're going to, in order to get back to whatever our normal is, or at least our new normal, I don't see it happening before there's a vaccine until it becomes a readily available test. And I don't know the accuracy of all of the five-minute tests. They're supposed to be highly accurate, which would be great. I mean, the pregnancy tests are incredibly accurate, and it's the same principle using uh, monoclonal antibody testing generally to use those instantaneous tests. Um, Moves. Maybe you could comment on that, but uh, gentlemen, I shall be right back. Until the test is widespread and you can really figure it out, we're going to rely on the laboratory testing to test people and gradually get them back uh, into the system. And then the, when the vaccine, that'll supplement it. The question, as you just mentioned, Pearl, is if someone has the antibody, does that mean they're not contagious? And we know that some people are gonna be shedding virus while they're, before they're symptomatic. We know that uh, individuals shed virus and they probably shed virus while they have antibody. We don't know if they're contagious necessarily, but if they're shedding virus, you kind of have to believe that they're contagious. And, and so. is it a definite thing that if they have the antibody, they can't catch it again? No, that's still an open question. Yeah, that's yeah. a good question. We don't, we don't know. If you get short, we, you probably get short-term immunity. How long that immunity lasts is uh, impossible right now to say. Mm. A little depressing. I feel like we're yeah. going to be this, <laughs> it really is. This, well, look, the, be like in our fucking homes for a lot longer than I think we believe. The flu vaccine is pretty much the same flu antigens every year, give or take one. I mean, they went, there's now a quadrivalent that most of us have gotten. It's, it tests, it provides immunity for four viruses, but most of these viruses are the same ones that were last year also. The flu virus doesn't give long-lasting, or the flu vaccine doesn't give long-lasting immunity. You know, measles, we got the shots when we were kids, and it's close to lifelong immunity as far as we know, mm -hmm. for most people anyway. I don't know. I feel like even when we hear little shoots of positivity, like the number of new cases, I think, is slowed a little bit in New York. I just sit here and look at the long-term implications and I, I'm yeah. just overwhelmed. <laughs> like, I'm just like, I know there's no, there's no like exit strategy, you know? Well, you, know you, you think like, for example, if they start playing sports again and then a player tests positive, do they then have to go through the whole thing again of, well, let's shut it down. Don't you think that's going to happen though? Don't you think we're going to, we're going to open up the gates a little bit. Something's going to happen and we're going to close them down. I, I feel like I, that's going to be part of the process. I do. I, you know, I just say like, okay, everybody's okay. Oh, you know. Well, well we yeah, here, now, now in September, everyone's called. We're back in for two weeks again. And, and that's, I think until there's a vaccine, 
Of course, I, I any, anything else is going to be winging it. at best to work for any prolonged time. Okay, you're out. You can do this. You can do this. And all of a sudden, it starts exploding again, and they're going to have to pull put the constraints back on. I don't see any other. Yeah. Okay. There's going to be a lot of starts and stops, I think. Yeah. A serious question. Ricky, do, does the pandemic of 1918, does it teach us anything about this? Um, haven't been around that long, but you know, the problem was that's exactly what happened when there was no treatment. There was no real understanding of spread, or at least I won't say no real understanding because germ theory had antedated 1917 by about 50 years, 60 years. But the contagion was one that was very virulent in a very, well, at that time was a comparatively crowded situation for the time. Now that obviously it would be the population was so much less, but if the numbers are right, I think they say it killed up to 100 million people worldwide wow. at a time that the population was probably only a billion, right? Wow. Mm -hmm. Maybe 2 billion at most. So it, uh, it was devastating. And we didn't have the vaccines then. Once we got the vaccines, obviously we've dramatically curtailed how many people die of the flu, but still we have, we have people in our hospital who refuse to get the vaccine and the state laws, if you don't get the vaccine, you have to wear a mask during flu season if you come into contact with any patients. So there are individual healthcare providers that you will see wearing a mask from roughly September through April. And it makes no sense to me that you wouldn't wanna be protected, but again, they're relying on everybody else having been vaccinated. So they'll benefit from that because if, if everybody else is vaccinated, you as an individual be protected. Hey, guys, I, I got to go. But Ricky, I have to tell you, I mean this honestly, this is the most informative, um, I, the most information I get that I rely on in this whole thing. You really know your stuff. And you oh, thank you. Alan. Way that I, very, we, we live very there. assuring. Like I, I have to say, I mean, not comforting necessarily, but I really feel like you, you really understand this stuff. And, and Dr. Fauci of Camp Swingo. Yeah, no, he really is. is. He's a genius, Fauci. I, I mean, he was there on the AIDS epidemic, uh, the spread of AIDS. He's, he really is one of the giants. And not, yeah, not, not, not literally, obviously, <laughs> but uh, he well, is. A point guard. Good yeah. point guard. Muggsy Fauci. That's, right. well, that's the only people we should hear from, I feel like, at this point. Well, yeah. Coach K said he was the, uh, I, I, the guys, point guard of the nation. Later, Alan. Stay calm. Be well. Be safe. Close up in a second, anyway. Right. Yeah. Ah, much better. <laughs> <laughs> I like your shirt there, Eddie. Hey, hey you, guys, you guys went all out. I kind of went unofficial. I have my Michigan State uh, hat, which is, uh -oh. you, know, right you know, you know, it, it's it, Michigan, Michigan State's perfect. There you go. Right, I <laughs> I'm going say this is my fifth year award. I'd be all right. <laughs> it is. It's like a major S there. Look at that. Yeah, I, totally. I can go get my fourth year award out of the closet now. Look at that. Look at that. No, I agree, I agree with Alan. It's, uh, and we talk, spoke about it on the last episode in that, like, you know, here we are with uh, all the information capabilities in the world, the internet, and, and still the information flow on this issue is just, is terrible. Whether it be like, the numerical stuff about ventilators and, and, and protective gear and, uh, you know, the models of the virus. It just seems like all, all of our technology all falls by the wayside if you can't get actual Accurate. objective information. Well, for the longest time, they were saying you had to drink water. Drink water, hot water. That was the key to right. this. Well, yeah, it's never a bad idea. You know? <laughs> no, no, that's not a bad good, idea, but, but it's not going to. But you also had, I mean, you also had yeah, like it's... actual lies. So you had the World Health Organization saying, "Bad, ah, don't wear a mask." It's it's yeah. Well, that's what was good. that to me was the biggest, uh, or the second biggest error. The biggest error was really China not being honest uh, about it. That they denied there was human to human transmission, and that set every country back. And unfortunately. Italy and Iran and now Spain are really bearing the burden of that. And I, we are obviously, but not quite to the extent yet, and I hope it never reaches that. But the outright misinformation and deception for their own political gain, I guess, was really, or economic gain, was really uh, disappointing. I, mean, I read a statistic today that 400 
billionaires, of the 400 billionaires in the world, everyone lost money except nine, the nine from China. You know, that's telling right there. It's a little disappointing to see statistics like that. But the second biggest error, as uh, we just heard, was the WHO, really. And I don't know why they protected China in all of this, but they really were in lockstep with them and very disappointing that a theoretically nonpartisan commission should be so blatantly mis misinforming the, the rest of the world. I have to say that when I was hearing about the, the, the Wuhan virus, you know, and I call it only that because that's what I was referred to back in December. Right. Like my knowledge at the time was that it was human to human transmission. Like what, what would the alternative had been that everyone was catching it from bad bat soup or well, it seems to me like it was well, only logical they, that would be eight bats had gotten bitten by bats. Um, there was the pangolin they thought was uh, a carrier of it. There was the uh, civet cat they thought might have been a reservoir. So they weren't sure that because it was so concentrated, well, based on what they said, they weren't sure mm -hmm. that it was concentrated because it was really all from that one market area that it seemed to have spread. You know, the laboratory was, what do they say, 300 yards down the block? That's a little the, scary. Yeah, that's yeah, a little scary. Yeah, so, you know, the problem <laughs> is if you're a conspiracy theorist, immediately you're saying, well, was this released to a population to see the damage it could do? Um, it's, I think or, it was or, or was it negligently released? Or was that, it negligently released? containment vessels broke, <laughs> and that's how it released, got released. I think that's much more likely. Yeah. I, it, it couldn't have come from bats. They've been eating bats there for hundreds of years without this happening. So there had to be an impetus to make this happen. Anyway, when I lived there, one of the few things I did not see on a menu. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. All right, listen, guys, I've, I've got to run, too. I've got an okay. Ozark. Uh, Thank you. Uh, it's great to see Eddie. Mike, great to see you guys. Easy, you guys. Everyone. Let, stay Ricky, safe. I know you're, you're nuts, but like... Can we do it like next week and catch up? Because I know this week's going to be insane. So maybe we can do it again and just, just sure, further sure. catch up. Just wash your hands, everyone. You don't rub morning, your face. You we'll do. All right. Moon way, everyone. Be safe and don't stop believing. Never. Never. Peace. Moon way.